this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today's Thursday, February 2nd. 2023. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky, coming to you from bookriot.com. Um, I was reading today about, uh, well, one of the, we're doing a deals, deals, deals for the Patreon. We're going to record that in about an hour. Mm-hmm. And um, so look for that in the Patreon feed. If you, you know, if this is the kind of thing that finally tip you over into being a Patreon <laughs> member, that'll be available next week, book, uh, excuse me, patreon.com slash Podcast. Um, I'm going to talk about a book deal that is um, from – the author is someone who is, I think, one of the co-founders of Electric Lid or maybe N plus one. Anyway, an internet rag about books. Okay. And they're writing, I think, about – well, you'll hear about it in a second. But it's a book-related topic. It got me thinking, Rebecca. Mm. If we were going to write a we, – we, too, have been a part of an internet-based literary rag, book rag. We're doing it right now. <laughs> Let's just rename if it we that. Were gonna, Internet-based if we were going to co-write a book, yeah, about something related to books, what do you think we would do? What, what, oh. you know, what would we do? What would you like to do? What would we be best at? Those are three different questions that could those be the are same. Three, answered in, in, those are three different yeah. questions. Huh. We could do... Well, I think the obvious answer is something about Toni Morrison, Marilyn Robinson, or Colson Whitehead. But do we want to do a book length work on that? Probably not. I don't just, want can to I just be, be a reader. Academic. That's what I'm thinking. Just let me yeah. read and do the thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I. I mean, it, today with no prep for right this question that you were going to ask me, I think that we could do some like truths about the reading life or like. Uh, oh talking back against sort of like the way the internet talks about what it is to be a reader or the bookish identity. Um, I don't know. I'm thinking a think lot about that there's a whole book stuff. in that? I yeah, don't know. I know you've been thinking about it. I don't know there's a whole book in that. Yeah. I don't I, know. I like that idea. Maybe maybe sort of a, um, a history of the popular, what the popular imagination thinks about the idea of reading is maybe a, the bigger idea. It's like, you know, sure, for a while yeah. it was, there's all these educated, newly educated young women reading novels and how that's bad for society because <laughs> it'll, you know, that, and now, now novel is, is it the most virtuous, quote unquote, capital V virtuous thing you could do in your spare time is sit around reading literature? I'm trying to think, other than like volunteering for doing something like that, something that's not overtly altruistic, probably sitting around reading a hardcover of literary fiction. And I'm not saying this is true. I'm just saying in the popular estimation, the curating of that activity. (laughs) But even that even seems stuffier somehow. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, I mean, you could be right. I think think it's in the same ballpark. I think that's right. I think they're both perceived as like high-minded, but there is a... Well, I've borrowed vocational awe from the librarians to mm-hmm. talk about avocational awe with reading. Recreational and I think, awe. Sure, yeah, there it is. Uh, I think that there's this halo around reading Make is a thing you do to make yourself a better person, and reading just makes you a better person. Where you know, going yeah. to the symphony or the opera or uh, the art museum are all kind of, can be equally high-minded pursuits, expansive mm-hmm. pursuits, but they don't have the same connotation of morality to them, uh, yeah. which I disagree with. Me, <laughs> but, yeah. I do think, too, part of the reason that um, like sitting down and reading a literary novel especially has kind of a, a two-horse length lead in the horse race of um, recreational awe 
comes down to discipline and how hard it is to carve out time for yourself, given all the ways that algorithms and people are uh, mining your, you know, trying to chip away at your ability to mm-hmm. freely direct your time at something that isn't supported by ads. Uh, we'll make, we'll take a break for a sponsor here in a minute. So just wait. Um, and, uh, there's something I think maybe people think that of it as aspirational in a way that like just going to the symphony isn't like you're buying a ticket and you maybe. show up like you're going out. It has a different kind of thing, but like sitting in your room reading a novel and then not posting about it weirdly is like <laughs> I don't know. It's like you're a monk. Yeah, I think <laughs> you know, there like there's could be about something that. to like a history of literary activism or literary like yeah. moments of progress through the lens of 10 books or 10 movements that would be interesting mm-hmm. i know yeah. you like a history of x and x things so i'm just trying to hit one right down <laughs> the middle there how about a history of books in 10 influencers and you go all the way <laughs> back to like the early days of the printing press or something like that because there were people that could mm. put their thumb on the scale in a way that goes throughout like book clubs used to be so huge like Lionel sure. Trilling's book club this is this is wild right. to say was like one of the most influential places people got books in like the 1940s and Invisible Band or uh, Native Son by Richard Wright is the book we know it is because the book of the month club selected and moved 400,000 copies a recasting of influencer culture that goes all the way back to something yeah. like that is the thing I would love to I would love to read Ooh. it do I want to write it words of I mouth I just titled it words of mouth <laughs> Yes. We have any agents listening to this show? We're ready. Yeah. We could get $5,000 and not earn out on that. <laughs> All my writer friends look like they're having such a great time. All yeah. the time. <laughs> Just all the Looks time. real chill. Yeah. Well, then you, or we could go work in publishing. We could get paid $42,000 to live in New York. We'll get to that in a minute. I would love uh, to not do that. Let's take a a sponsor break and we'll, we'll come back in a second. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies. And that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. From the best-selling author of The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle comes a new mystery. A fog has swept the planet, killing anyone it touched except for the island where villagers and scientists live in harmony. The villagers content to do what they're told by the scientists. But then one of the beloved scientists is found brutally stabbed to death, and they realize the security system around the island has malfunctioned and has wiped everyone's memories of exactly what happened the night before. So someone on the island is a murderer, and they don't even know it. Best-selling author Stuart Turton is a major voice in the mystery space, The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, and his second novel, The Devil and the Dark Water, have sold over 450,000 copies and become a TikTok phenomenon. He's received fantastic reviews from best-selling authors in major outlets. Make sure to check out his latest work, The Last Murder at the End of the World. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by Underlined, publishers of The Night in Question by Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson. If you know me, you know I'm a huge Agatha Christie fan. I've been reading her since I was an actual child and reread her at least a few times every year. So I'm so excited that this sequel is out because it's reminding me about the original that I've been meaning to read for quite some time. And now I can read both back to back. So, how do you solve a murder? You follow the lessons of the master, of course, Agatha Christie. 
Iris and Alice find themselves in the middle of another Castle Cove mystery in this sequel to the New York Times bestseller, The Agathas. This time, to understand the lies of the present, the Agathas will need to look to the mysteries of the past. The Night in Question is available now wherever books and audiobooks are sold. That audiobook I have my eye on, and it's narrated by Mare Dudeja, Sophie Amos, and Holly Linneman. Thank you once again to Underlined and The Night in Question by Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson for sponsoring today's show. Stuff to tell you about. Um, I'll take hiring. Hiring for two gigs right now. Mm-hmm. One, an ad ops folk person to help send our ad ops to adverti- advertising operations, trafficking ads, reporting on them, getting working with clients back and forth, working with our writers and creators on our side to make sure that that we have ads where they're supposed to go. They sound good. They sound right. Um, our clients are happy. They make sense for our audience and all of the back and forth that goes on along there. Um, and then a full step web developer help us make the tech, um, the electrons on the front and back side of the internet that we use. For those who don't know what that is, if you're just interested, that means you can work on servers and WordPress, stuff that readers and listeners don't see, and then stuff that people do see, whether it's the site or a template for a newsletter or something else like that. So if either of those sound like something you or someone you know might be interested, go to riotnewmedia.com slash careers. There'll be a link in the show notes as, al- show notes as always for this and all the links we talk about here. Rebecca, talk about something we're trying to get you to buy rather than something we're trying to hire you for. Trying to get you to buy the bookish equivalent of Stitch Fix. It's called TBR for tailored book recommendations. You can find out about it at mytbr.co slash gift if you want to give a gift of this for, I don't know, Valentine's Day is coming up. It's really hard to pick books to give as gifts to other people who love books. Even like... I probably know your reading taste better than I know anybody else's because we've been doing this once a week for 10 years, like the ins and outs of it. And maybe if we were in Powell's together, actually, this might be a fun thing to do next time I'm in Portland is like go into Powell's, split up for an hour, get back together and each have picked Mm. out three books for the other person. I I think we could do that and probably have a reasonable... You know, a reasonable hit rate, but we're very familiar with each other's reading habits. And most people that mm-hmm. you're friends with, or maybe that you're dating, you know, like something about what they're into, maybe what some of their favorites are, or some of the books they hated. But like just to go pick out a book and hope they haven't read it, or that they haven't like heard something about it that makes them not want to read it, or any of those things, it's really tough. So we will take the work out of that for you. We have people, not algorithms. You fill out, you or your person who receives a gift, fill out a profile that tells us about what you like to read your sort of all-time favorites, recent things you enjoyed, stuff you didn't like, even sort of cultural things like TV and movies that you like that give us just a flavor for what you're into. And then the bibliologists, that's what we call them, are matched up with clients based on their areas of expertise. So if you want to read like lesbian vampire erotica in space, we got somebody who can recommend that to you. They will either send you an email at the emails only level that gives you three recommendations with explanations of why. We've picked those for you. Or you can sign up for a hardcover level where you'll get those books or your gift recipient will get those books in the mail. It's really fun. It's fun to be surprised. I have been like, I'm not just a member. I'm also the president. (laughs) Like I have been a a customer of TBR um, in the process of getting it set up over the last couple of years. And it's really fun to say, here's what I'm looking for and to be surprised and delighted by the discoveries and by someone else, like looking at your Goodreads, seeing what makes sense to give you and then recommending a few things there. So this sounds like something you want to try. We have a link in the show notes or if you're looking for a gift for an upcoming occasion, whatever that may be, you can do that at mytb co or mytbr.co slash gift. Again, there will be a link in the show notes. We got one more thing to hawk. Sort of, it's kind of a new story. It's related to what we talked Well, I'll just do it now. What, what am I, what am I yeah. worried about? Um, we've got a new ebook, Book Riot, put out. Uh, it's available on Amazon right now. It's called How to Fight Book Bans and Censorship. Um, you can maybe figure out what it's about. This is a <laughs> <they're> not trying <laughs> to be cute about the titling here. No. You've heard us talk about stories um, related to book banning and censorship really over the last year and a half or so, I think, um, especially. And this is a collection of some of the stuff that Kelly and Danica and some of other other writers have done. Some new stuff there. Two hundred fourteen pages. It's pretty long. Like it's it's some, it's more than a pamphlet. 
Um, it's three bucks on Kindle, or if you're like me, it's seventy four cents after credits. Hey because there. I, you know, I've got some Kindle credits to use. Um, that's so annoying. It's like they're putting it right in front street. That's it. I'm getting sidetracked by a different story that, <laughs> that doesn't really matter at all. Um, so go check it out. Recommend to a friend if you're a librarian. You can gift it. Um, it's really cool to see something we wanted out there that people could have all in one place. Um, you can rate it and review it too if you wanted to. It's now the number one new release in general library and information sciences. So Exciting. you know it's a dream come true, really. <laughs> it's it's crushing, I should say, the number two pick on the list, which is undergraduate research in the academic librarian, case studies <laughs> and back practices. That's a paperback that runs you eighty six bucks. So it's a tough look. Yeah. The number six That's one a is a survey look. of US higher education faculty. It's hundred and nine dollars in a paperback. You know, I want to bring so it back around go. to how this is great news for us to be the number one new release here, because yes. the idea for this came up about mid-year last year when one of our coworkers, Clint, um, started seeing and hearing folks talk about uh, ebooks that were either free or really low priced that were being passed around through, he was hearing that they were being passed around through like right wing circles of folks who yes. wanted to ban books. And it was like, get your $1.99 ebook about how to get on the local school board or how to get books banned at your kid's school. And we started thinking about like Book Riot does a lot of coverage around, you know, the exact opposite of that, really trying to fight it. Why don't we make a resource that is available and that can go wider than just people who are, who know of Book Riot and who are aware of it? If somebody is searching for a resource, you know, on Amazon, you can find this ebook now. Um, I think I got to pay two ninety nine for it because I don't have fancy credits like you do, but it's worth you know, it. Yeah. Um, also, I guess in future programming notes, Rebecca's going to be on vacation in a couple of weeks, and Kelly's going to join me as my co-host yes. this week. And I thought we'd talk about some of the things here. If you got a question about book banning and censorship or anything for her, um, shoot me an email, podcast at bookriot.com, and I'll, um, well, I'll first see if it's good and worth talking about, but I'll be interested to see what people are interested. I am looking forward to having her. I don't think she's been on the show before. I can't. I was trying to remember. I think maybe she's been on with me when you were out. Oh, okay, um, maybe. But I don't think I've listened to y'all do the show together. Mm. And I know it'll be nice for her to get to stretch her legs. She's gotten so she's been on so many she's done so many media appearances talking about book banning in the last couple of years that she's gotten super good at talking in sound bites, which is a skill unto itself. Like mm. how do you give the substance of this thing, this really important thing, in like thirty seconds or less? And it'll be nice for her to get to sort of, you know, talk a little bit more broadly about some of these things and maybe get into some of the more specific questions that listeners yeah. might have here. So that'll be cool. Got two pieces of listener f- feedback. They're, they're not in the agenda. So these are news to mm. Rebecca. Um, one is more than a handful of emails about people being delighted and sympathetic to my, I don't know what you call it. Um, soapbox about the passenger. Interesting <laughs> that it became a bit of a Rorschach test for people's own response to the passenger. Uh-huh. Um, people who both really liked the book and were really frustrated the book was like, you were right on. And I just want to say, okay, great. I'm so happy for you that you saw that. But I ultimately did like the books. So for those mm-hmm. of you who were thinking you were hearing me say, wah, wah, why, not really saying that. Just just so you know, I just need to get that out there. I like these books. I kind of wish they were the only kind of books I read to some degree. Like this kind of reaction is so unusual. I think you even said at the time, I don't remember hearing you react like this. Um, I would trade 15 very good books for one reading experience like this because that's who I am. Now, is it good? Yeah, the- Not really the point, actually, for me in this particular. Mm-hmm. I, I've mm-hmm. read enough good. This is something else, and that's the thing that I'm reacting to. So just wanted to get that out there. <laughs> I've read enough good is something that I've been thinking about a lot, too. And I think mm. it might come up in my own front list foyer takes later that there's something really special about being unsettled by something that you've read and pushed and uncertain about how to respond, which is, I think, where you were when you were on the show fresh off of the passenger. Like, I liked this and it also shook me up. And that being shook up (laughs) by something, not everybody likes that. Like, cozy mysteries exist for a reason. And it is fine if you don't want to be shaken up by what you read. But if that is the thing that, like, blows your skirt up, it's really special when it happens. And I'm glad that you got to have that with that book. 
book. I'm not going to read The Passenger, much to Clint's dismay. He was like, well, I had to read some books that Jeff recommended to me that were tough. He didn't have to to do anything. I recommended 10 books to my friends and family 15 years ago, and he (laughs) He read one of them, and he's like... He won't get off the cross about this. It's like you chose you you picked up twenty six sixty six by Roberto Bolaño in hardcover. You could have guessed that it was eight hundred pages. Did that you can do yourself, anyway. my friend. Anyway, right. I will not be suffering through or or whatever it is through the passenger. I like to be shook up, but maybe in a different way. Um, I would love yeah. to hear listeners who like that feeling. What have you read that gave you that? Send us your lists yeah. at podcastbookriot.com. Also, had some nice notes about our white noise episode, which we both enjoyed um, doing, and I think we both got a lot out of it. I, I wouldn't recommend The Passenger or Stella Maris to you, though I have to say this. If we did a book club about those two together, it would be <laughs> dynamite. It would be an amazing ponder. hour to do. So if you ever lose a bet or something, you know, mm-hmm. th- th- that might be something to uh to consider. Has that a, shot to the top of the reward. list above Rebecca Reed's Lonesome Dove for a summer? <laughs> Well, we've got that in the can. We're just waiting to release that this summer. We, I mean, since we already did it, I don't think that really counts. So mm-hmm. that's just a matter of time. But we talked about White Noise last week, the book, and the movie, mostly the book. Um, there was a reaction of someone watching the movie. I think it was on the Patreon saying, what did you do? Was this Jeff's idea? And I would just like to say <laughs> the book rules, and I hadn't seen the movie. I can take no credit for the, the making Rebecca watch the book or, suggest, or watching the movie or suggesting to any of you. You did that to yourself, yeah, all of you yeah, out there. I- but I'll stand by the book as worth reading, and if you don't like it, fine. But I'm not going to be like, Jeff, what are you doing about White Noise by Don DeLille? Not happening. Not, yeah, not on my watch. no. No, that was, it was an incredible read. I think doing the, pot, the Patreon episode was my idea ultimately, because we had said at some point, like, oh, yeah. that'll be interesting. And I was like, I've never read it. I've heard it's amazing. Whatever Noah Baumbach does, I'm in for seeing. And I have only good feelings about having done that. It was messy and interesting in a way that was fascinating and talking about it was really fun. So if talking about The Passenger and Stella Maris would be in that same vein, then like mm, I'm more open to it. <laughs> apparently McCarthy, and I didn't want to read too much about The Passenger Press before I got to that, but apparently he's been like living in or around like a, a theoretical mathematical institute for like the last 25 years. So all the quantum mechanic wow. stuff, he comes by it honestly, for better or worse. I think that the quote someone gave it, these are his people. <sighs> so there you go. It's just fascinating. Um, it's so fascinating to see. Um, but, 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 what was the other listener feedback? Oh, I thought this was interesting to talk about maybe for a minute. I don't know. You tell me. Someone emailed to say, what do you guys mean by genre? Please explain what you mean by genre. Isn't every book in a genre? Mm. And I think that's an interesting question for a couple of reasons, though it doesn't trouble me. And I'll explain why, and I see if, I'll see if you agree, Rebecca. I think you could argue that every book is in a genre of some kind, but what we mean by genre is those kinds of books that are pretty squarely in the middle of a certain artistic and literary tradition or expectation. Um, is literary fiction a genre? I think you can parody some kinds of literary fiction, but I think ultimately it's not. I think literary fiction or commercial fiction, you could upmarket whatever, general fiction. There is a world in which you don't really know what you're getting necessarily, but in genre fiction, and I guess primarily we'll call them what? Romance, mystery thriller, science fiction, fantasy. Mm-hmm. They, they hew closer to an established set of norms and expectations and they can wander from it and still be genre. And the, the lines are blurry. But what I mean, when I say when I say something like, you know, this works better in genre fiction, sort of as a category, I mean something that is largely trafficking in and around that sphere of influence and expectation. Not to say it can't break out, but that with literary fiction or general fiction or commercial fiction, there are stereotypes and there's patterns for sure. But you could write any number of things. It could be literary fiction, and those things could be quite different from each other. Like you could pick 50 literary fiction books and not have some things that look like mm-hmm. each other, where you can't really do that with 50 genre mystery thriller books. So it's useful more than it's true, I guess, is kind of what I'm saying. And I, I don't worry about this too much. Uh, Rebecca, am I close? Where, what would you amend yeah, to my uh, you brief are monologue? Very close to how I would explain what I'm talking about when I talk about genre. I think of it as defined, genre fiction defined by tropes or constrained by tropes, which is 
I, really the same thing you're talking about when you say expectations. Like in romance, there's a very familiar arc to the story. They meet, they fall for each other, there's some kind of conflict. Usually they split up or they're navigating the conflict, and then there's a resolution, right. and then there's a happily ever after. In mystery, like a thing happens. You spend the book gathering clues. There are probably some red heron herrings at the end. There's a solution. You know what happened. Science fiction and fantasy has its tropes. They're a little bit less formulaic, I think, than the mystery, thriller, and romance tropes. And I don't mean formulaic as a bad thing. I think that for the best best writers in romance and in mystery, thriller, like very successful art in those categories happens when someone finds new, creative, surprising ways to work within those constraints. And just like anything that is like tightly constrained or tightly defined, that doesn't have to be restricting. It can be a prompt for innovation. And there are writers in those genres who do that really, really well. Within literary fiction or sort of general fiction, the innovation tends to be more about the language than about what happens in the story or the craft of the writing than what happens in the story. Like when we talk about literary fiction, we're often talking about like books where not much happens, but you're in a character's head through an experience or inside a couple yeah. characters' heads through an experience, character driven rather than plot driven. Genre is often, not always, more about the plot. And there are some sort of comforting things about that for people that you know what you're getting kind of when you go mm-hmm. in when you pick up a category romance novel you know that it's going to end with a happily ever after or now sometimes a happy for now as things are evolving when you pick up a mystery you know that at the end you're going to have figured out who done it there will be resolution and that's a very satisfying kind of reading experience especially if you want a reading experience that gets tied up at the end literary fiction makes no promises about those kinds of things, I think. Um, One of the reasons that I like reading a lot of literary fiction is the ambiguity and that it asks you to just sort of sometimes just sit there and be like, like, or the reaction you had to the passenger, what was this? What do I do? What genre? (laughs) I mean, I think I said on the show, like McCarthy starts off with a mystery thriller, like No Country sort of for old men style. And it's like, nope, we're not doing that. We're doing something that, I, I don't know, untrodden ground. Um, right. In a lot of ways to me. Yeah. One of the titles I'll talk about in Frontlist Foyer is a new mystery that I thought broke open some of the tropes that I, that you're familiar with from mysteries really well. Cool. And so, so that's, I think, what we talk about. But it sometimes happens that like fiction or literary fiction becomes the sort of standard and that everything else, if it's not one of those things, it has to get named as a particular <laughs> genre. It's kind of the default. The assumption is like, this is a book of fiction. <laughs> And if it's not just that, but it has these tropes or expectations built around it, then we start adding the genre classifications, I think, really to help readers find their way to the kind of book that they want. Or the origin of those is in marketers being able to tell readers what kind of book this is so that they can sell it appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. Like to say that white noise is literary fiction is both useful and not at all helpful. Right, because you um, could say white, and like white noise, white noise and beloved are both literary right. fiction, and they, what do they have in common? Basically, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> you will be unsettled. Yeah. The end. So you, you, that's our usable. Uh, that's how we use it. I think that's that's fairly close to a normative use. That doesn't mean it's right necessarily. It doesn't mean it's useful to you. But I think that's a pretty that's a pretty intelligible language to most people who use it that way. Um, if you don't want to use it, if you disagree, fine. That's okay. I'm not super hung up about it uh, at this point. Um, I think that's all my follow-up. Let's do stories. What's the most interesting? We got kind of a kind of got a bit a bit of an Easter basket here of of stuff. Mm -hmm. What's the chocolate bunny in this Easter basket of stories for you this week? (laughs) Little variety pack. You know the chocolate bunny for my soul this week was an Ezra Klein column in the New York Times about how much he loves Barnes and Noble. And I wanted to share it here and with listeners because it's both just a lovely personal reflection on what it meant to him as a young person, as a young nerd, to go sit in a Barnes & Noble and read stacks of comics, how he came back to that as an adult. But it also ties into some of the business development and business transition things that we've Mm -hmm. been discussing around Barnes & Noble over the last couple of years, especially since James Daunt took over. And one of the 
pieces here. You know, you're Ezra Klein, so you get to inter- interview James Dunn, and Dunn tells him, <laughs> That's you right. know, how is it that bookstores do justify themselves in the age of Amazon? They do so by being places in which you discover books with an enjoyment, with a pleasure, with a serendipity that is simply impossible to replicate online. And to do that, you have to have a good bookstore. And that sort of sums up what Dante has been trying to do and I think successfully doing in many cases with reshaping what's happening in Barnes and Noble stores, not just where the furniture goes and what the ratio of books to games is, but that the titles are faced out more often. So it's easy to see the cover and be drawn to something that's part of discoverability that the stores uh, are not engaging. Barnes and Noble is not engaging in the paid placement with publishers anymore. Displays are chosen by bookstore or booksellers in that location in each local store's location based on their interests and what they think will serve their customers. And he's trying to sort of re-centralize Barnes & Noble as a place that will meet you as a member of your community and your interests and help you find the book that you want to read. And I think Klein is saying that he's found that to be successful, at least in the Barnes & Noble that he frequents. It was a nice opportunity for me, I think, reading it to step back and instead of just reading like industry analysis of what Barnes & Noble is doing or quotes from James Daunt talking to Publishers Weekly about what he's trying to do to think about somebody who doesn't work in the publishing industry, but who loves books, whose life and career have been shaped by them looking at what what does this mean? Like Ezra Klein's not a typical book consumer, but he's kind of the ideal book consumer. Like he's <laughs> right. writing this yeah. column sitting at the Barnes & Noble Cafe somewhere in San Francisco. Um, and to have that perspective, I just thought was really lovely and really grounding for, okay, right, this is what Daunt has been trying to do. All these things, even the stuff that's been upsetting to different segments of publishing culture, you know, yeah. about like less backlist being ordered or or fewer children's books being ordered or more things need to come out in paperback. That's all geared towards a focus on the customer. And I, I really appreciated that, that James Don's like, we are trying to make a bookstore that people want to come to. And once they're here, we want to help them find books so that they can buy books so that we can continue being a bookstore. Like, he is not interested in catering to the industry. And when you have somebody like that come into a position and he's got to shake up a lot of things to stop catering to the industry, to, you know, pull back the paid placement, to say, we know you don't want to publish more paperbacks necessarily, or people are going to be upset (laughs) by that, but that's what people want to buy. (laughs) Like there's kind of a, to be a successful salesperson here, he has to be a kind of consumer advocate. And that was a hat that I hadn't thought about, you know, the CEO of a store like that having to wear in that kind of language. So that framework was really helpful for me. That was just my chocolate bunny of like, look, a really thoughtful person who's thinking I admire talking about bookstores. Let's go. Yeah, it does crystallize a lot of the things we've talked about over time. I think a couple of things that um, that jumped out, well, not jumped out to me, but surfaced um, long dormant or sort of below the surface been there for me. One is, talk, about, talk to Mike Chatskin as a part of an annotated about kind of the history of bookselling, especially in the particular moment Barnes & Noble found itself then, this was before Daunt took over, um, of basically the value proposition that Barnes & Noble presented to, let's say, you and I when we were teenagers was, look at all these books. I didn't even know there were this many. I can go discover books. I can wander the stacks. They became basically a warehouse, a wood-paneled mm-hmm. warehouse where you could go get lost and find stuff that we just didn't have access to in 93, 94. Um, but once Amazon was like, oh, wait, we can do that, but the warehouse is the size of an airplane hangar, and there's 50 of them in the country, and they'll come and be at your doorstep tomorrow or the day after, then that sort of warehousing repository value proposition of Barnes & Noble went away. And they've struggled to say, okay, if we're not that, what are we? We're not an an indie. We can't be the raven downtown of super local, really small, you know, 600 square feet. That's not the kind of business that we are. Indies already do that. So what can we do? And the writing was kind of there, or I guess the question was there. Is there a business around just that people like to go to bookstores? They like bookstores. Not that it's more convenient, not that it's cheaper, not that it's really instrumental reason of any kind, but just the experience of going into a bookstore, 
looking at books, touching them, picking them up, browsing, and then buying them right there. Don even says in this thing, there's something to picking out a book and buying it right then. That's different than clicking a button and having it show up in two days. I think that's really smart. I think it's really Mm -hmm. smart to say we're going to capture whatever value is available to us there. And to do that, we need to be a really great bookstore. So what do people like about bookstores? They like that there are a bunch of books. I mean, it sounds dumb, but, it, <laughs> but it's it, right there. that's not what they were doing five years ago, right? When there was just puzzles and stuffed animals when you walked in. And I, you know, I did my location report, I don't know, last summer when I, or last fall when I went to one of these new format ones. Like, it was, it was really nice. I looked at a lot of books that I probably wouldn't have looked at because the, the cover was out and there weren't too many quibbles here and there. And their customer is their customer and it's not publishing. It's not the author of a hardcover middle grade book that hasn't sold any yet. And I realize there are consequences to that, but this is really crystallizing about if you see the mm-hmm. decisions Barnes & Noble is making through this lens, I think all the decisions they made have make sense to me. Yeah. Yes. That's a great way to put it. It really sort of pulls all the logic together of what Daunt has yeah. been doing. And it's hard sometimes to see that forest when you get you know a dozen stories a month <laughs> that make up the trees right. from Publishers yes. Weekly and the various industry sources about what's happening in the industry and what everybody's concerned about with booksellers or with Barnes & Noble in particular. You know, I, I really like to quote in the piece where Daunt says, we take three steps forward and then one step back. And then he clarifies that the forward is my constantly encouraging and pushing for the stores themselves to have the complete freedom to do absolutely whatever they want, how they display their books, price their books, sort their sections, anything. And then he notes that those freedoms are difficult if you lived in a very straight-jacketed world where everything was dictated to you. And that, for me, really captured what maybe some of the bumps in the road have been over the last couple of years, that like if you are a Barnes & Noble store manager or a bookseller, and it has been pretty dictated from on high, coming down from corporate, yeah. what goes on that octagon table at the front, which paperbacks you have to make sure to put on the paperback favorites table. You haven't had the space to exercise discretion or maybe even to think about what would I put on this table. Getting to getting comfortable with just trying stuff and seeing what works is a completely different way of working. And I hear him in that quote recognizing that, that you know, this, this is a really different way of working and I'm pushing for these stores to have total freedom and to use it. And they're figuring out how to do that, which is pretty cool. You know, I'm yeah. planning a little trip to my local Barnes & Noble in a couple weeks to pick up a hardcover on release day of the new Rebecca Mackay because we're going to do a book club of that. Yeah. So I want to make sure, yeah, want to read it in person, read in person, in paper. I in read all person. my books in person. <laughs> You'll take your VR goggles off, Rebecca. Come on, <laughs> right. join us here in the corporeal world. Yeah. What a funny Freudian slip. Um, yeah. But I, I like that even in my city, the different Barnes and Nobles are starting to have unique personalities. And, you know, I think we've got three locations that I can go to relatively frequently without having to, like, you know, drive too far. That's cool to see. And it's not going to happen overnight. So part of me, and maybe this is like the part of me that runs a business, wants to be like, could everybody just chill for maybe like another year and let James Daunt cook? And then we can come back and talk about how it worked. Like the the sort of constant analysis of change while it's in the process of changing is both a thing that, you know, like coverage is going to do and we're part of it. Mm. Um, we're part of this problem, but maybe not so helpful in understanding the big picture. And so I appreciated that Ezra Klein took that step back and said, hey, let's look at this from what it is like to be a customer. And I think it completes the circle. And I don't know if James Don has been like on a PR push or Ezra Klein saw one of these other pieces because there's been some Barnes & Noble worked or Barnes & Noble has faked pieces in, in various places. And this mm-hmm. is either a culminating piece, um, functionally an opinion piece with a little reportage from Klein or at least an interview from Don. But it seems like they're taking, the, they're taking a little bit of a victory lap at Barnes & Noble. And I don't yeah. quite know why. I mean, it's private equity. <laughs> Are they trying to get spun off? I don't. There's a cynical part of me that's like, we're giving a lot of quotes here and it's been a year. Let's be careful out there. <laughs> I guess is kind of what I'm thinking a little bit. Um, kind of along the same lines, but I don't, it's interesting that there seems to be a bit of a, a bit of a groundswell of, hey, yeah, Barnes & Noble, you been in one recently? I took my, my MacBook and I had a all oat milk latte and it was pretty great, um, mm-hmm. which is great. And I'm like to see it, but it's interesting. There's a, there's kind of a, like, why right now? Um, yeah. how, did, how did it occur to Ezra Klein? Was he just in the Barnes & Noble? I don't know. I'd love to know the sort of uh, uh, TikTok of how these things get made. But worth reading, New York Times, 
Uh, check it out there. A book I will be buying in person on release date mm-hmm. is Jasmine Ward Ever Heard of Her. Oh, uh, yes. Coming out with her new book called Let Us Descend, October 3rd from Scribner. Uh, it sounds like a Jasmine Ward book, and then I was like, and which I will read, but then here's the hook that really got me. Let Us Descend is described as, quote, a blend of magical realism, historical narrative, and Dante's Inferno. Let's go. I'm Injected going. Let's go. into my veins. <laughs> yeah, some upside this... down popes, some frozen s- Satan's groin. I don't know what this uh-huh. means, but let's uh-huh. go. Let's go. I'm ready, somewhere, Jasmine Ward, to be, have my heart ripped out. Like somewhere deep in a Rubbermaid tub in my attic is my copy of Dante's Inferno from AP English. With yeah, all is. the maps, like the handouts yes. with the maps of the circles of hell. And I took it, like that AP English class was amazing. And then when I had to read Inferno my freshman year of college, I aced that class only because of <laughs> Anna Lucas, my senior AP English teacher. I am ready. Let's go back. I will descend with Jasmine Ward. This automatically becomes the first book we have to take off the board when we do the fall books draft. Like, we're not going to I think you're right about that. Over we Jasmine haven't seen the Ward. full lineup, but it's hard to imagine what might um, usurp this. Yeah. It might not be the only one we take off the board, but this is the first one that's going on that list. I'm ready. And I know we got the announcement maybe three or four months ago that she had made a two-book deal. One was a novel. I believe the next one is a memoir. We were just celebrating Jesmyn Ward, but very, very excited to have a title and some details. You can pre-order a copy from whatever your bookstore of choice is. I will definitely be taking myself to some bookstore, wherever I'm going to be on October 3rd, I don't know, but I'm going to be right. in a bookstore in that place buying a copy of Let Us Descend. <laughs> been six years since Sing Unburied Sing. I wouldn't have had Ward on my oh. um, my stop my clock for when's the book coming out, but th- six years. I mean, I know literary fiction tends to be longer. I just wouldn't have, I would have said it was two years ago, but this is COVID mm-hmm. era. My brain isn't what right. it used to be. Um, the, the geologic time of books also does something to you where it doesn't seem that mm-hmm. long if it's it's not Donna Tart or George R. R. Martin. Yeah, it um, doesn't feel like but, it's been forever since we had yeah. a Jasmine Ward. Yeah. No. Very exciting. Six years, It's that's not that long. I mean, it's longer than genre <coughs> might be for, for most <laughs> genre books. Um, but uh, for this, it's pretty interesting to see. Okay, how about publishing mess? Sure. There's a pub- Things publishing, are mess. <laughs> publishing mess. Publishing mess. Um, well, y- things are messy. <laughs> things are messy. So PRH has a they're slow rolling to head rolling. It looks like mm-hmm. in the in the wake of the failed Simon and Schuster acquisition. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I don't even I don't even think it's worth going through all the names except no. the next one. We've talked about Madeline McIntosh before, the CEO of PRH US. I think for listeners of this show and for us, this is who we think about as being in charge of Penguin Random House, right? Yes. She's at the mm-hmm. top of this particular pyramid. The the water that flows from her, or that's not how pyramids work. I, I'm not sure. But um, sits at the top of the decision-making that influences the kind of books we tend to talk about on the show and in American trade publishing writ large. Um, the longtime publisher... Um, and president of the Random House Publishing Group, Gina Centrello, left a couple, a few weeks ago. I know all this is confusing. Presidents of Random House versus CEO of PRH. Suffice it to say um, that the generals and the executive staff are all going right. This, this is mm-hmm. what's this is what's happening right now. Yeah, that's and the way. Some of it, I think, is sure. I think it's some of it is the failure is. It's hard to stay there if the thing you were working on for three years, A, didn't happen, and B, for, for extra kick to the butt, you get a $200 million penalty, essentially, um, which is a lot of copies of uh, the new Colson Whitehead, if you put it that way, uh, to, to, to swallow. Um, but then they also need a change in direction, too. And I don't know how much of this is you're either going to resign or you're not going to resign, and you'll get a different kind of letter from me. It doesn't really matter at this point, except that it does – this failed merger has a lot of implication for the muckety mucks at PRH. And I don't exactly know why or what's going to happen next or what the new people do that these people wouldn't, but it was not without consequence to PRH and the people involved there that that deal Mm -hmm. didn't go through. I don't know that any, this will matter in terms of the kinds of books we're picking up at any particular time, Rebecca. I, I, I don't know. Are you more interested in PRH or less interested or 
this is just the the reshuffling of the deck chairs on the the floors of the Titanic to which we do not have access. I think it's too soon to know that like I, I think when we know who the new global CEO is since Marcus Dole yeah. stepped down in the fall and then who is going to take Madeline McIntosh's place that will be the determiner of am I more or less interested or does it just stay the same? Like there are some ways where they bring in somebody really interesting or someone maybe unexpected who has a decidedly different take. It's pretty surprising for an industry that's as staid and that can be as slow to change as publishing to do something like that, to bring in somebody who really will shake up things from the highest levels of the company. Um, But I would be interested to see it happen i think you know expected average reaction (laughs) is they'll name a new ceo and we'll be like okay that's a person who's Mm going to be the ceo all right let's carry on but that it probably won't be a difference to readers um certainly it might make a difference to the folks who work at prh but that's that's such a big ship with so many well-established ways of working and books in the pipeline for years to come that Mm -hmm. like the the general reader is not going to be terribly impacted by a a, you know a change in the c-suite at any publishing house yeah um over to harper collins Still striking. There's a piece in LitHub we can put you there as well. Um, HC has agreed to come to the mediation table. At the same time, this is this is not what you want. This is you get in a car wreck and then um, a, a tornado hits yeah, the part of the interstate you're on. HarperCollins is cutting 5% of its workforce. Um, the TLDR is, it's not going great at HarperCollins from a sales and revenue point, point of view, apparently. They're pointing to inflation, supply chain, sales being down relative to earlier periods. Not the kind of thing you want to do during a union situation. On the other Mm -hmm. hand, I think it maybe explains a little bit more why they seem slow-footed to deal with the union situation and and the bad PR and, and frankly, what seemed like disinterest in what seems like to be a very painful situation for a lot of the people involved. And... It's hard to know. I mean, we're a little bit more on the management side of the of these things these days, so we have a little bit more sympathy for management. And what I'm the story I'm seeing right now, if you tell me if I my reading is way off, is it looks to me like the reason they weren't negotiating is because they have a revenue problem. Their P and L is screwed up, mm-hmm. and so all these concessions were going to make it worse. And maybe they needed to take take care of some of these other things before they could sign up. I don't know. There's like a couple, these things seem related to me, but which came first, the chicken or the egg? I don't know at this point. The strike, the mediation agreement, the cutting of the workforce. It seems like these things are moving in together in in motion. Um, seems difficult. I would not want to be trying to manage this right now. That's what I'll say at this point. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be in charge of those decisions either. This does, I think, shed some light on as you were saying, why this might have been going slowly, and it provides just useful perspective. It colors in some things for me. I think it's really easy in a story like the HarperCollins Union being on strike to just set aside the assumption of good faith, which is a thing that is Mm -hmm. really important to me. I know it's really important to you. And be like, well, those jerks, how dare they not yes. be willing like like the things the union is asking for are so reasonable and we've said that over and over and over and I, the people in the union know that the things they're asking for are reasonable and so it becomes very easy to be like how could those jerks just not entertain this conversation and that erases both that the people who are really in charge of the decisions about the money are up higher than the people yep. who are in charge of deciding That's who's right. going to have to get let go from which department when the budgets get cut. And so like if you're a I'm going to kind of guess, but like if you're a publicist at a mid-level slot in HarperCollins and you might get laid off, your boss or your boss's boss probably have to make that decision, but they're not the ones holding the purse strings about how much money no. your imprint gets to start with or how many people have got to be laid off. And that's just a, it's a tough spot for everybody to be in. This just gives me I want to hug everybody. <laughs> you know, like it's tough to be 
one of these folks on the picket line who's asking for very reasonable things and have not received any response for you know 60 days it's yeah. tough to be inside and to be a person who maybe wants to respond or wishes that they could or can see that these are reasonable expectations but you cannot answer those expectations because the PNL looks so bad that's just an impossible situation to be in and i hate it for everybody involved it was a bummer to see this, that this is going to happen, that HarperCollins is struggling in this way and that 5% of their U.S. workforce is going to be laid off, that it happens alongside the union strike, complicates both how those layoffs are going to go, I think, and also how these negotiations are going to go, but did help me understand why has this been so slow and reminded me as a person, like, right, maybe let's not assume that they're just jerks who have could be that it's always a possibility is it always the only possible possibility no it's not right and it's (laughs) not the right it's not the first place i want to (laughs) go no and this reminded me about that um so just uh uh, just a rough it's a rough time over there and i i hope that the folks who are directly impacted by this are going to get access to you know resources and some kind of comfort. I hope these negotiations will go well. It's hard to imagine how they can agree, how HarperCollins could agree to increases in salary for some people while laying off other people. Um, But that's not impossible. And it wouldn't be the first time a business had done that. It's just also that's a tough it's just everybody's in a tough spot here. I wouldn't want to be in anybody's shoes in this situation. Yeah. I mean, a lot of there's nothing easier to do than spend other people's money. So, and sometimes it's the case that we just need to pay people more and compress our margins. Like I think in a lot of cases, maybe even most cases in this situation, that's what should happen. Again, I'm not. I don't know Harper Collins PNL. I don't know if they're in the red or the black or whatever. But there's worlds in which that doesn't work. There's just not a hidden pool of uh, money to dip into somewhere. Right. And the reasons for that can be complex and understandable, and they can be because of inequity or mismanagement, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. And it's very hard from the outside um, to see. I think if you have to, if you have to have fewer people and pay them more, that's probably more humane in the long run, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, money's not infinite, and these are companies that exist to make a profit for the people who own them. And that's going to continue to be true as long as they're publicly traded. And you can argue about that if you want, but that's the world we live in. How much should be taken as profit is up for debate for each individual company at each individual moment. It's very tough to see. Um, but this is the kind of thing that happens, though, I will say, this kind of reshuffling when maybe there is some fundamental thinking going on. This might mm-hmm. be the kind of thing that happens. You know, we, we shouldn't pay people this little, but if we pay everyone more than we've got 5% too many people in order to be whatever our target is. It could, yeah. it could very well happen. That could be it the could. case. Um, secondary consequences, Hachette has raised base pay uh, to 47.5 in high cost areas up from 45. Um, I guess some of this is competitive, I think, to some degree. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much they're like trying to prevent unionization efforts. I think as much as anything is a lot of these people are competing for the same talent, the same yeah. workers. Um, and if you're trying to get people to go work for you versus McMillan or someone else, if you pay, you have to pay, paying in the ballpark or paying a little bit more is an advantage. I think it's interesting that one of the things going on here is this is going for an expanded 40 hour work week. So on a per hour basis, you're probably getting less from a 35 hour work week. Fascinating to see. The most interesting thing to me about this announcement, which was in publishers lunch today was Mm-hmm. That that note, Simon and Schuster is of the Big Five, the publisher that has the highest base salary, which is fifty thousand. It's for an expanded forty-hour work week, and the note there is that most others pay for a thirty-five-hour work week. Yeah, and I had never heard that, and I've also never met anybody in publishing who would be like, "Oh yeah, I work thirty-five hours." A week. <laughs> yeah, I work exactly forty-five, and everyone's <laughs> cool with it, and I just walk out when I, when yeah. I punch in my thirty-five. Yeah, thirty-five is. I mean, that's fascinating. Like, that's not what mm. we think of as the standard work week in the U.S. No. And I just, I don't even know, like, where to start asking questions or, or even what to, I don't know enough about the situation, I think, to even wonder intelligently about 
what's going on there with that 35 hour work week designation. It seems that that doesn't, that does not align with my understanding of what the lived work week is actually like. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. That's S and S pays fifty. I'm, I'm yeah, getting confused yeah. in my press. S&S and they pays pay 50. for a forty hour work week, mm-hmm. where most others yeah. pay for a thirty five. So some of that, as you say, that fifty, that five, our, our behavioral economics brain is like, wow, five is a lot bigger than four. Well, mm-hmm. fifty for forty is not that much bigger than, if at all, bigger than forty seven five for thirty five. Sure, uh, which is but if check, everybody so. is really working like forty eight or fifty two hours, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Which, yeah, it's. I have questions. If you know something about that and would like to shed some light on it for us, we would love a birdie about yeah. 35-hour work weeks in publishing. Hmm. Um, let's do a sponsor break and then, um, you know, go, walk into Frontlist Way and see what's, uh, see what's coming in the mail for us. Today's episode is brought to you by World Editions, publisher of Salamalik by Khaled Alasmael. In this unflinching story about Arab masculinity and homoeroticism, Farat, a Syrian in his early 20s, visits Sibki Park in Damascus, one of the city's most popular cruising areas. There he learns about the Hammam's secret meeting places for gay men located throughout the old city. So inside these public baths, the air is thick with the scent of bay laurel soap and naked men hide in the steam. Ferd faces sometimes violent disapproval from all levels of society, regime, religion, the man in the street, you name it. And yet he manages to find the love he's been seeking just before his world collapses and he's forced to flee. Find out more about Salamlik by Khaled Alasmael, translated from the Arabic by Larry Price at IndiePubs.com slash products slash Salamlik. That's S-E-L-A-M-L-I-K. And thanks again to World Editions, publisher of Salamlik by Khaled Alasmael for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by Lavender Khan and Little District Books. LavenderCon, which is just the best name for a book festival, is a new book festival in Washington, D.C. It's presented by Little District Books, which is Washington, D.C.'s all-queer bookstore, both of whom are dedicated to celebrating LGBTQIA plus authors and stories. The festival will feature over 80 authors, including Terry J. Benton Walker, the author of the Blood Debts duology, famed audiobook narrator Natalie Nottis with her debut romance novel called Gay the Prey Away, and Rashid Newson, author of My Government Means to Kill Me. And as I am looking at the website right now, breaking news, I saw a familiar face, and that is Book Riot senior contributor Susie Dumont. I'm so excited to see her name on this list, author of Queerly Beloved and Looking for a Sign. So you have so many great authors to discover at the festival. LavenderCon will feature 20 plus panels with topics for middle grade, young adult, and adult readers discussing romance, fantasy, horror, writing craft, and more. There will be a queer artist market, so you can go nab all of the great art and stickers and pins and handmade goods. The festival is happening June 29th and 30th in Washington, D.C., and you can either grab Saturday, Sunday, or two-day VIP tickets, which come with a few extra perks. Thank you once again to LavenderCon and Little District Books for sponsoring today's show. We hope you make your way over to the festival. All right, you were teasing earlier, Rebecca, so why don't you, why don't you lead off with the front list for you this week? All right. Well, I read Big Swiss by Jen Began, ah. one of the hyped... Most hyped, I think, debuts of the season. It was one of my picks in our seasonal draft. It's also one of the picks that got me votes in the draft. When I just took a cursory look, people like it was one of the titles that people were like, oh, that was one of the decision makers for me and who I voted for. So that was interesting to me. Like the hype is extended beyond like people who do our jobs into folks who listen to the show and the kinds of readers who are just paying attention to like lists of books that are coming out. The setup is like Shinsky catnip. It's about a woman lives in the Hudson Valley. She works as a transcriptionist. One of her clients is a therapist. And so she transcribes his therapy sessions. She becomes kind of obsessed, fascinated, interested in uh, one of the clients who is Swiss. And so she refers to this client in her head as big Swiss. And because she lives in a small town, the Hudson Valley is like really functions like a small town. Um, She is at the dog park one day and recognizes the woman's voice coming out of the body of the person standing next to her and is like, oh, this is hmm. this is who this person is. And it turns out I know a lot about her. And they become friends and start dating and have a relationship. And it is 
complex and messy and like the pitch for this you know transcriptionist for a sex therapist falls for someone that she hears like that's really juicy it's a great pitch for a book i think it's a good i was whelmed it's mm. a good debut You're whelmed. okay i'm whelmed it's a good debut it really captures the feel of the Hudson Valley. If you've ever spent time there, you know, like it's a mm. bunch of small towns that sort of all come together. She captures the vibe of what those places are like and what it is like. The, the, the people that are often drawn to Hudson and kind of what the communities can feel like. I thought that felt correct and very present to me. I think it makes the mistake of conflating messiness with interestingness like Mm. some of it is just people being messy and not all stories about people being messy are interesting stories (laughs) Mm. at least for me um so i was whelmed i think probably the hype worked against it Uh, that's always a thing for me to try to overcome especially just individually Uh, a big hyped title is a like if i'm aware that it's super hyped I got to do some work around that when I'm reading. So I enjoyed it. I'm not like sad that I spent time reading it. Is it going to be in my top 10 books of the year? Probably not. It's not like an anti recommend, but I, I was just yeah. whelmed by that one. Um, the thing that I was very happy to have read was a title that you introduced me to, I think also on the draft recording, Scorched Grace by Margaret. Oh, uh, Margo. you got, that's right. You got to read it. Okay, tell me about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Margot yeah. Duwahi. It's a first in a series. It's a mystery about a queer, brown, crime-solving nun in New Orleans. Let's go. <laughs> it's amazing. Her name is Sister Holiday. She's got her own checkered past. She's like in her first year at this convent in New Orleans. Um, She's one of four nuns who live there. They also teach at the school that's attached. And fires start breaking out at the school. A couple people are killed. It's a big mess. And she, you know, doesn't think the cops are doing enough or doing the right things to try to solve this mystery. And so she gets herself involved and also starts trying to solve the mystery. And it's just so it was so much fun. The voice is fantastic. I want to hang out with her all day long forever. Like I will. I'm not a big series reader, but I'm going to read every Sister Holiday mystery Mm. from now until forever. Um, And the the New Orleans of it all, like you can just feel the humidity in the air and the bugs and hear the music and all the smells and all the things that like culture of New Orleans really comes through. I felt like I was there. This is one that I will be watching for an adaptation of like, who doesn't want to make an adaptation about a queer crime fighting nun? (laughs) Please tell me. It was just, it was super fun and it had a great surprise, like a very surprising ending. And I say that like, I'm always surprised by the ending of Mysteries. I'm ter- I've said it before. I'm terrible at guessing who it's going to be. But even beyond the surprise of the who done it, just the way it all goes down. Like I read the last 10 pages with my eyebrows just all the way up. It was a great Was time. it Cormac McCarthy? Don't tell me. Was it Cormac McCarthy <laughs> starting the fires? Yes. Okay. Um <laughs> It was it was just a great hang. It was super fun. And I'm it thrilled dovetailed. To hear it. I'm so glad yeah. to hear it. Yeah. It dovetailed it with a out. weekend that I had spent marathoning the first four episodes of Poker Face, which is like a, a kind of updated Columbo starring Natasha Leone on Peacock. And these like I was like, just maybe this is who I am now. I just want like really interesting detectives doing things. But it's it's fantastic and it comes out on the 7th, so tomorrow, if you're listening to the show on its regular release date, you can trot down to Barnes & Noble at 3 p.m. That's when right. the kids get out of school to make their TikToks. Face and out. You can, pick, you can pick up Scorched Grace, and you should. It was such a good time. It was great. I'm so glad you, you just said it. That. I don't know if you just said it, but in a pre- everyone, uh, I'm sorry if I'm repeating what Rebecca said, but... One of the things that caught my eye about this when I put in, I think Deals, 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 or was it The Draft? I can't remember. One of the two I can't remember which one, that we yeah. do. One of the two. The thing that caught my eye, there's a lot of pitches that sound really good when you read them mm-hmm. like this. This is one of the parts that makes Deals, Deals, Deals fun. And they, they don't turn out well, or they're just one of a bunch or whatever. But the, one, the other thing that caught my eye is this is the first 
product from Gillian Flynn's partnership with Zando, right? And Gillian Flynn, who wrote Gone Girl, who's been doing TV stuff, basically is blessing this book, shepherded it through. I'd love to know, like, does this book not get picked up or doesn't – like, what's the value add Gillian Flynn did here? Because there's a world in which – I don't know. I'd be so fascinated to know, but that's another thing that gave us some trust and tried and curiosity. And I'm so glad that it that panned out. Yeah, it made sense to me as a book from a Gillian no. Flynn imprint. I did some thinking about that also, that like Sister Holiday, you know, has commentary about the patriarchy. She has commentary about what it's like to be queer. She has, you know, commentary yeah. about uh, religion and complexities of race and all sorts of stuff in American culture. It's really sharp. In not the same way that Gone Girl is sharp, but they are akin to each other. And I could see how, like, if this was in a slush pile somewhere, it's one of the things that Gillian Flynn would have been drawn to. It makes a lot of sense to me. And it is maybe the, it's the first time I've read a book from a celebrity imprint where I was like, yes, I understand this connection. (laughs) And not just that it was a book that that celebrity liked. Um, Right. So... Yeah. Well, and Gillian Flynn is a writer first, celebrity right. second. Right. I mean, is she a right. celebrity? I guess is a yeah, maybe to us. That's but, true. Uh, yeah. But you know, like yeah. the the upcoming, the, we've seen the first three titles that are coming out from Roxanne Gay's imprint with Grove Atlantic. And those also make sense inside right. you know, what you expect from Roxanne Gay. But there have been other writers, successful writers who have had imprints. And it's like, all right, cool put your stamp on a book that you like and want to advocate for but this would make sense to me like they're very aligned in what they care about and the ways that they want to tell those stories and also yeah really creative use inside the constraints of what happens in a mystery does the um nun give a monologue around christmas time about the patriarchy a yule girl (laughs) monologue if you will (laughs) No, but maybe she no? should. Maybe she should. <laughs> the Yule Girl. <laughs> I feel like the Yule like six people are gonna get. <laughs> the Yule Girl is the essay that somebody should write for BuzzFeed yeah. when right. the inevitable like Christmas gifts from that scene from Mean Girls where they're singing Santa Baby oh. and the little like clingy yes. outfits come out. That's what that is. That's Yule the Yule Girl, girl trope. Yule Girl monologue. It's awesome. <laughs> Sexy Lady uh, right. Santa. I'm going to end there. I've got a, I've got a whelmed thing. I'll save okay. it for another time, or I won't talk about it. I, I don't want to besmirch our – I don't want to sully the excitement, um, the crackling in the air for this book. I want to be, stay excited here and get everyone okay. else excited to do it. You can listen to all – well, you can see the show notes, bookriot.com. Listen, you can listen to whatever you want. But you can also find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash bookriotpodcast over there. Shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. Rebecca, I'll talk to you very soon. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for listening. 